0: Good morning, everybody. Let us begin with prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again, we pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you knit together your faithful people of all times and places into one holy communion, the mystical body of your Son, Jesus Christ. Grant us so to follow your blessed saints in all virtuous and godly living. That together with them we may come to the unspeakable joys you have prepared for those who love you through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit one God now and forever. Amen. 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 Okay, the congregation at prayer verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's speak that together please. For as in Adam all die even so in Christ all shall be made alive not. Okay. In Adam, what does this mean? To be in Adam. The world. Okay. The world. Sinful, sinful from birth. birth. Okay, sinful from birth. What is it that you wear on your bones and muscle? Flesh. Yeah, your flesh. In your flesh. Uh, when when we talk about Adam. One of the senses always uh, is the understanding of the flesh, your life, you being born in sin, in the flesh, living in the world. It's, it's all of this together. I just like the word flesh. Okay? But there's another thing here. In Adam, what is original sin? How have you contracted that? Why do you bear the sin of Adam, even though you weren't the one in the garden that disobeyed the Lord, that took pride and put it before God? Well, because you were in the garden. Because you are of Adam's seed. You are the flesh of Adam. St. Augustine talks about this. When Adam is in the garden, and when Adam becomes prideful, all of his progeny, all of you, are in him because you come from him. And you all fall because Adam falls. Because he is your father and you're in him. Okay? So, that... In Adam, in the flesh, in your father, all die because of sin. But, even so, in Christ, all shall be made alive. There's two things that I want to point out here. The first is the, uh, the parallel between Adam and Christ. Because who are Adam and Christ both? Yes, that's not enough. First, what? Okay, closer, you're getting warm. What does Adam mean? Man. Man! That's what we're talking about. There's a parallel between Adam and Christ. Why? Because Adam is the man. And what does Pilate call Christ? Behold, the man. The man. Mm-hmm. Who do the, why do the Jews get mad at Jesus? Not because he says, I'm the son of God, but because he says, I am the son of man. <laughs> I am the son of man, because that means he's the Messiah. So... In one man all die, but in this one man all shall be made alive. Because this Adam is the Adam that the first one should have been. The new Adam. Like he's the new Moses, he's the new Adam too. The the man, the way the man is supposed to be. The man who fixes the problems that man made and couldn't fix himself. And then here's the last point I want to make. Who shall be made alive? All. Well, now, wait a second. All what? Believers? All non-believers? All who have asked him into their hearts? Who is all? (laughs) All means all, to paraphrase Luther. Is means is. All means all. All shall be made alive. Passive language. Always keep your eyes peeled for passive language. Who makes himself alive? None. Mm-hmm. But Jesus makes you alive. And where does that take place? Baptism. It's imparted to you in baptism. Where does the original event take place that makes you alive? Christ's resurrection, the death on the cross. The First. death. Not the resurrection. The, the death. death. Yeah. There's a reason that we always harp on the death of Jesus, that Paul preaches Christ crucified because your salvation is won in the death of Christ. You are made alive in the death of Christ. The death of Christ is really, really important and the resurrection of Christ is important because it confirms the victory that is won. If Jesus dies and doesn't rise, then it really doesn't mean anything. But he dies and in his death wins salvation for you and then he bursts open Uh, Bursts out from the open tomb and confirms the victory that he's won and seals it. Okay, let's speak this again. For as in Adam all died, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Okay, uh, Catechism. What is the third article of the creed? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. What does this mean? On the last day, he will raise me and all the dead and give eternal life to me and all believers in Christ. This is most certainly true. Who is he? Third article of the Creed. Oh, Yeah, okay. This is just... I'm making sure we don't have to play the pronoun game so we all know who we're talking about. Okay? Uh, He will raise me. And who? Else? All the dead. All the dead. All shall be made alive. And give eternal life to who? To you and to... All believers. All believers. Now, here is the difference. All shall be made alive... But eternal life shall be given to all believers in Christ. Who's left out? Right. Now, this preaches something really important. Uh, true death doesn't take place when the body dies. True death doesn't take place until the resurrection. Why? Because all shall be made alive in Christ. If Christ dies For the sins of the world, as St. John the Baptizer confesses, then all have the forgiveness of sins, and all will rise on the last day. True death doesn't begin until you look Jesus in the face on the last day and say, no thanks, and he says, I've pursued you long enough, goodbye. That's true death. But to you and to all believers, in Christ, life is given questions? Okay. Children, you may depart. How many of you have seen the movie The Secret Garden. The Secret Garden. Okay. Oh, this is not as not as many people as I thought. I think that's the movie where the little girl says, "I have spoken. All depart." (laughs) That's just. That just reminded me of that. Uh, Maybe another time. (laughs) See me after class. Uh, okay, it's a hymn day, uh, and we're going to look at Hymn 708. Uh, there's a handout for the hymn that we'll follow along. Uh, this is, so I told you I'm trying to keep the hymns of the month seasonal. So for last month, of course, it was uh, a Reformation hymn. This month is a, an All Saints hymn. And you're getting everything front-loaded because it's done after today, <laughs> but you still have all month to sing this great hymn. Uh, so uh, this is the one that we're going to look at and that we'll have for the month. And it's kind of long, so for the rest of the month, we'll just start with the first stanza. But you can sing as many stanzas as you like in your own home. Now, how many of you already know this hymn? Okay, Yeah, I, I, it was, I think, maybe last week even that, that we sung it. Good. But I, uh, but I hadn't taken the opportunity yet really to teach it or talk about it. So we're going to do that now. And one of the reasons why we're doing it is because this is one of my favorite hymns. And uh, if you don't already have the hymns planned out for your funeral, uh, I'd like mm-hmm. you to keep an open mind. And perhaps consider seven zero eight. I know Bill's list is pretty full. So, pardon me. Is
1: he on the date
2: for you? I don't know. I haven't talked to him about it yet. <laughs>
0: uh, so, <laughs> Lord, Lord, the I, I love. love. This is a great hymn, and one of the reasons why it's so great is because this is one hundred percent a Lutheran hymn. In fact, if you look through the history of this hymn, which I did this week, and you try and find other hymnals that include it, you really don't see it popping up in any hymnals except the Lutheran hymnals. So if you really want to be Lutheran, this hymn owns it to the teeth. This is just a fantastic Lutheran hymn, and it's old. It's one of, one of our really old uh, historics and one of the most historic of all of our hymns. Uh, traditionally, it is a sterbeleed song for the dying because of the text that is used. Uh, so it's often, and probably most often, uh, a funeral hymn, which makes it fitting then for all saints too, uh, when we re- remember our blessed departed. Okay? Um, now, I want to talk a little bit about the author, Martin Schalling. And it is Martin Schalling the younger, because his father was also Martin Schalling, who did a lot of things. So we have to differentiate. He was a Lutheran pastor. He was one of the reformers, uh, one of the later reformers, and uh, a good theologian. One of the things about good theologians is that they tend to write good hymnody too. Uh, So a lot of the the older hymns that you look at And if if you're looking down and seeing who the author is, it's a lot of these old reformers who were great theologians and then also taught using their hymnody, explaining the faith through meter and rhyme and setting it to music uh, so that things are remembered more easily. Uh, So a lot of these theologians, like Martin Schalling, also write very good hymns. Schalling studied, of course, where it seems all the good Lutherans did at the University of Wittenberg. His teacher was Philip Melanchthon uh, and Martin Schalling became the favorite student of Philip Melanchthon during his studies there. And also while he was there at Wittenberg, he became very good friends with Nicholas Selnecker. How many of you know the name Nicholas Selnecker? He's in Yes, he did. Yeah, he was one of the authors of the Formula of Concord uh, with Jacob Andreas and with Martin Chemnitz. So, Nicholas Selnecker is a pretty big figure in Lutheran history, and one of his real good friends was this, Martin Schalling, the hymn writer, pastor, and theologian. Now, you may uh, start to see a theme with a lot of the hymn writers that we talk about here. And that is, the entire ministry was miserable. And for Martin Schalling, it was for a few reasons. The first one was because he he would get called to a church, and he'd serve there for a few years, And the elector of the territory would decide that he didn't want to be Lutheran, he wanted to be Calvinist. And then he would go to all of his pastors and tell them, you need to teach this way, you need to talk this way, you need to preach this way, you need to be a Calvinist now. And Martin Schalling, yes? What's an elector? An elector is like a provincial ruler a territorial governor in a way. So like Elector Frederick the Wise was the elector uh, who helped Luther out a lot because he gave him, he was sympathetic to the cause, to Luther's cause, and he hid Luther in his territory and protected him there. So. It was
1: a secular
0: job. Yes. Yeah. It was a secular job. They, in a sense, worked for the emperor, in governing smaller regions of the, of the empire. So he'd go to these different territories and be a pastor at the church and the electors. Uh, and what you need to understand historically about this period is that there's a lot of upheaval because the Lutheran Reformation uh, really sparks something. It takes off in a way that nobody thought it ever would uh, because there was a reformer who came before Luther. Did anybody know that? Somebody tried to do what Luther did before Luther came around. Uh, Huss, yeah. H- yeah. Hus? Yeah, Hus. And guess what happened to him? Burned at the stake. Yep, he was burned at the stake and his teachings really didn't go anywhere. But Luther did exactly the same thing, uh, but because of the war that was going on with the Ottoman Empire, remember we talked about that at the beginning of last month, that's one of the reasons Luther wrote, Lord, keep us steadfast in thy word, because of the invasion of the Muslims from the Ottoman Turk Empire. Because of that invasion and the war that was going on, the, elect, or the uh, um, emperor said, I don't really have time to deal with these little things that are happening in Germany. I've got bigger fish to fry. I'll deal with it later. That combined with the invention of the printing press meant that Luther could teach and his followers could teach and publish mass quantities of uh, teachings to be distributed quickly. Uh, so when, they were, when the emperor finally turned to start dealing with what was happening in Germany, it had exploded. Um, but because of that, there were some unfortunate side effects. Uh, The first is the name Lutheran, actually. We uh, tend to take pride in the name Lutheran now and it serves to identify us in a time when there are lots of different Christian denominations. But Luther, uh, this is a paraphrase because I can't remember exactly how he said it, but he said something like, oh, woe is me and woe is the church for they have ascribed to Christians that believe the truth of the gospel, my sinful name.
1: <laughs>
0: and I said, I don't want. I don't want to be the person who has a name that then lives on as a foundation of a church. That's not what I want. My sinful name should not be the name of the church. But here we are, Lutherans. Okay. Um, but the bigger thing that the German Reformation caused was other reformations around the world. So there's an English Reformation, but the one that we care about the most is the Swiss Reformation. People like Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin, who then did what Luther did. But the problem with Zwingli and Calvin was this. They didn't want to reform the church. That was Luther's task. There's errors. We'll fix the errors so the church can continue being the church, because I love the church. John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli said, yeah, Luther had good intentions, but he didn't go far enough. We love the church. We just don't love the Catholic church. So we're going to rid ourselves of everything that ties itself to the Catholic church, and we're going to start over and only do the things that we think are right. So we're going to fix the teachings. We're going to fix the practice. uh, We're going to do away with all of this nonsense because Luther didn't go far enough. The church is, in a way, according to them, irredeemable at this point. There's nothing worth saving, so we might as well scrap it. Uh, And that caused some troubles. Now, in that whole region, there was contention because the Roman Catholic Church was still fighting, and her electors, her princes, her rulers were still saying, nope, this territory is going to be Catholic territory. But then others would say, well, I'm really swayed by this whole Lutheran, teaching. So my territory, we're going to be Lutheran. But then others still said, no, I don't really, I'm not swayed by this Lutheran teaching, but I am swayed by this Calvin guy. He seems to really know what's up. My territory is going to be Calvinist. So there ended up being these territories that were always going back and forth. Sometimes they were Lutheran until one guy died, and then his son became the elector, and then he would say, nope, my father was wrong. This is going to be Lutheran, not Calvinist anymore. And then it would change, and he'd go out to all the churches and say, now you all have to be Lutheran, or now you all have to be Calvinist. So Martin Schalling is in the midst of all of that, and he goes to these territories that flip-flop, and he wouldn't become Calvinist. And actually, uh, how many of you have ever heard of something called the Prussian Union? Yeah, so the Prussian Union is a rather unfortunate thing that happened in the history of the Lutheran Church. Did you
1: say Prussian or
0: depression? Prussian? Prussian. Okay. The Prussian Union. Yeah, so that was a bunch of rulers that got together and said, you know what, you Calvinists and you Lutherans need to start getting along. So now you're not going to be two. You're going to be one church and you're going to have one faith. So you're going to merge everything together and you're going to combine it all and that's what you're going to be. And that caused a lot of problems. It changed a lot of doctrine for the worse for us and probably on the Calvinist side they'd say the same thing, that it changed for the worse for them too. Uh, And that was one of the, we're tired of all this flip-flopping, we're tired of all this disagreement, you're all just going to get along now and be a part of one church And it didn't work out so well. Bill?
1: That also spurred some immigration from the United States. Yes, it did.
0: Yes, it did. The Prussian Union was a bad thing. And then what ended up happening is that a lot of Lutherans came to the United States and saw Methodism, which is something that came out of the English Reformation, and they said, hey, this is actually pretty cool. And then we lost a very large percentage of Lutherans because they wanted to be like the Methodists. Does it sound familiar? Nothing. Excuse me. Nothing new under the sun. The guy across the fence always has it better off than you do. So just don't look at the guy across the fence and be happy with what you have. (laughs) Okay. No, they are not close to Lutherans, not really, and even less so now than they were even during the times of the Reformation. Um, Yeah. I mean, we can talk all day about where the church came from and and why they're called Methodists and what they believe, but we'll save that for another time. They're not as close to us. Let me this is your pastor talking. They are not as close to us as they think they are and as they say they are. So if a if a Methodist ever says to you, Well, we're all, you know, we're all basically children of Luther, right? We're all Protestants, right? You say, Hmm, okay. And you can smile and you can nod your head and then you can walk away and do your own thing and know that that's not entirely correct, okay? Now, Martin Schalling is in the middle of this, so he goes to territories to serve as a Lutheran pastor. All he wants to do is to be a pastor, and he keeps going to territories that are converting to Calvinism, so he ends up fighting with the electors, and he's banished from territories and kicked out and sent someplace else. And then finally, he thinks that he has it okay And then they write the formula of Concord. And they want all of the Lutheran pastors to sign on and affirm the formula of Concord. We do that still. It's part of the Book of Concord. Martin Schalling would not do it. And one of the reasons that he would not do it is because he thought that the authors, one of which was his dear friend, were unfairly attacking Philip Melanchthon who was his teacher so he said no I don't think you really understand what Philip Melanchthon is teaching and you're coming after him unfairly I'm not going to sign on to this and say that I support what you're teaching when you're just making straw men out of people and then burning them down so then he was removed from another church uh, this time not because of Calvinism, but because of Lutheranism. Uh, So finally, he ended up at St. Mary's Church in Nuremberg, and that's where he uh, served as a pastor for a few years until he went blind and couldn't be a pastor anymore. Uh, So it's kind of a sad, uh, sad life. He wrote this hymn text in the year 1569, during that whole upheaval of being kicked out and kicked out and kicked out and bounced all around the German territories. And it was published in 1571. And now we're gonna talk a little bit about the tune because it's a very interesting tune. It was not the original tune, but we don't really know what the original tune was, at least I couldn't find it because this tune has been the tune since 1577. Uh, And it's so popular that nobody really went back. So this tune was first printed in uh, uh, an organ book, a tablature is what they're called with these organ parts and, and little hymn parts. In 1577, uh, and it's very popular, so if you, if you listen to uh, Lutheran composers, uh, this tune is used a lot. So here are just a few. Alberti, Schutz, Heinrich Schutz, is a great composer. You should listen to Schutz. I'm sure Praetorius probably used it. Uh, Krebs, there's a really, really great organ prelude on this tune by Johann Krebs. And I heard it for the first time, of course, at a funeral, because it was used as the recessional music. And I thought about bringing in my computer and playing it for you right here in Bible class. But I, the acoustics, the, the computer doesn't get loud enough, and it sounds all tinny and bad. Uh, so I'm going to try and post it to the uh, Facebook page. If you want to listen to it, find it there. But boy, it's great. And crank up the speakers, too, because, you know... When you listen to a big old German pipe organ, you don't want to listen to it. You want to feel it. (laughs) Uh, You want to feel those low pipes hitting you right in the gut and rumbling your whole body to the bones. That's just the best. So, uh, yeah, that's a really, really great organ work that Krebs wrote. Buxtehude, who was a predecessor of Bach, he wrote a lot on this tune. Hugo Distler, and then, of course, Bach. So really the one that we're going to talk about is Bach here because there are four times where he used this tune and two of them are really profound uses of the tune and the text too. So the first one is um, sort of a combination, BWV, BWV 149 and 19. So BWV is just, that's German, that is the catalog for Bach's works. And then the number is what number that is in his catalog of works. Sometimes it's a little bit chronological, and sometimes it's not. But both of those times were then for a feast of St. Michael and all angels, which is kind of cool. And the one in particular is number 19, because in this cantata, The tenor sings a big aria about the angels and about how the Lord will never forget me and how the Lord loves me and will guide me safely. And then in the background, there's a trumpet that plays this tune. And the singer's singing something completely different and the melodies are not the same melodies. But that tune plays in the background uh, for this particular hymn, Lord, Thee I Love With All My Heart, and probably an allusion to stanza three, which is all about, Lord, send your angels to watch over me. So those two things are happening at the same time. The tenor is singing some words, and then the trumpet is playing the tune that makes you think of other words. Uh, If you didn't think that Johann Sebastian Bach was a genius, uh, leave today knowing that he was. Also, here's just a little fun fact about Bach. There are some canons and fugues that he wrote for the organ where the entire point of his music was just to spell his name in the music. So H used to be uh, the key of B natural because it's a natural sign yeah so the way that it worked was if you know anything about music there's the scale bum 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 but the way the scale worked here was bum 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 there it is bum 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 so that's always a b flat but a natural here look at this you didn't realize you'd be getting a music theory lesson today if you know music, then you know this. If you don't, you're learning something. A natural looks like this, which looks like what letter, kind of?
1: Hey.
0: Looks a little bit like an H. So H became the letter that meant be natural. Bum bum bum, 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 bum. If you wanted to use that little guy, it was H. So. Bach wrote these fugues, and he put it first in the key of B, and then he, which was B flat, and then went down to A, and then jumped up to C, and then went down to H, B natural. And you can read his music, and he's just sitting there spelling out his own name in his music. <laughs> so, yeah. The other cool thing about what he does is, in the passions, when he is if you've never heard like the St. Matthew's Passion or the St. John's Passion, which is the best one? St. John's. uh, He does this thing where the voices go bum 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 and they do this weird cross and you can draw a line almost like connecting the dots. Every time he talks about the cross, the voices make the sign of the cross with the notes that they sing. Isn't that cool? Boy, I wish I could do cool stuff like that. Bach really was a genius. So anyway, the third time was BWV 174, which is Whit Monday. This is so this is old language. Do you remember Whit Sunday and Whit Monday, what all that means? Do you? You look like maybe you, it's Pentecost. Oh yeah. Yeah, Whit Sunday, that's Pentecost. Oh yeah, okay, now I know that at least one of these former congregations knew about it because some of those hymn board numbers, if you dig way deep to the very bottom of the stack, you can find Whit Sunday and Whit Monday in there. So I know some of them used it. Uh, but, so this is the, the Monday after Pentecost, uh, which we, we don't need to talk about. Right, that was just a quiz. But here's the biggest one. This is really cool, 245 the St. John's Passion. Boy, you really, you have to listen to this stuff, folks. You have to listen to the passions of St. Mark, or of St. Matthew, and of St. John especially. Um, I don't care if you listen to it with English or if you just listen to it with the original German. The music will tell you what's happening, and you don't necessarily even need to hear the words to know what's going on, because the music just But this hymn is played, stanza three, all about angels. It is is the final chorale of the entire work of the St. John's Passion. And what's even cooler is the Passion never talks about the resurrection explicitly. The chorus sings after Jesus is crucified and they sing about putting Jesus' body into the tomb and then the last thing right after that is Lord let at last thine angels come to Abram's bosom bear me home that I may die unfearing and in its narrow chamber keep my body safe in peaceful sleep until thy reappearing and that's the end of the whole work. You gotta listen to it. Do it if, so you can listen to it anytime. But if you really, like if you want homework, do it during Lent, especially. Listen to the St. John's, Saint. listen to the Passions, Vox Passions, St. Matthew and St. John, over Lent. And if you need recommendations on what recordings you should hunt down to listen to and which ones are better, you can always ask me, because I'm a snob about that stuff. <laughs> I know, go figure that I have a strong opinion. Okay. Any questions thus far? That's sort of the history and the tune and where the tune is used and how it's been a part of our, our uh, tradition here in the Lutheran Church. Rana? Where was what? Oh, it's in this hymn. Or are you talking about the work, the the Bach piece I was talking about? It's the Passion According to St. John, or the the St. John Passion. And it's a final, so the way that the passions work is there's a, uh, it's called a recitative. It's like in opera when they talk, when the narrator talks or when people talk to each other, but they sing talk. So like, Bill, you are looking at a napkin and you have a book in front of you. Imagine if we did that all day, that'd get old pretty fast. But so in, the, in these musical settings, the narrator says, and they took Jesus, and they brought him before Pontius Pilate. And he sings this a little bit, and then the chorus all comes in and says, ah, ah, and they sing something that ties in with the Bible text that was just sung read. And then it's interspersed with hymns, which are called chorales, like the four part settings of hymns that we do. That all came from the Lutheran Church. your welcome, world. The, the chorale setting of hymns, that was our uh, contribution to Christendom. Yeah, you can sit high and mighty with that one because everyone's using it. You can look at those Baptists and say, well, you're singing your four-part hymns? Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, you know, we're humble about it. Uh, just, we're, we're proud, proud of our humility, of course, so. Um, no, so the, then he intersperses it with corrals, usually one verse, one stanza, or two stanzas from a particular hymn. So if you're listening to the St. John's Passion, you'll actually hear in the little uh, choir corrals that intersperse the readings, you'll hear a lot of hymn tunes that you know. Uh, a lot of them. So
1: you, you, you listen to them,
0: Uh, wherever you can find it. <laughs> you can get a CD of it. You can listen to it on the computer. I, I have a, an extensive library of music on my computer, but I've, I've still got an old iPod. One that doesn't have a touch screen cause, because they couldn't, they didn't, when they made the touch screen, they took away all the storage, and I've got too much, and I don't care about a touch screen, so I'm old school. Okay, but I mean, anywhere you can find it, you can listen to it. Yes. Where is it? In the Bible? Or what? It's a piece of music that Bach wrote. Okay. It's, he takes the, the text of the Passion, according to St. John, and he splits it up and then intersperses it with extra little hymns and th- uh, chorale settings and other things that the choir sings. I mean, Bach was a great theologian, too, so a lot of what the choir sings is... Um, almost like sermons, they found, they found Bach's Bible and they were looking through it and he has all kinds of notes in the margins. He's underlined verses and all kinds of notes about, oh yes, this is what I'm gonna do with this and this. So he, he's, he was an avid student of theology and scripture and um, so he expounds on the text. So yeah, I mean, if you can find even an English translation of the, of the, of the text of the Passion, which you can easily find those online too. Um, and you just read through some that was of it. Bach a oh, 100%. He was a huge Lutheran. I know that. Yeah, Bach was a huge Lutheran, one of the most famous now. And he was a cantor, a, a church musician. So he worked in these Lutheran churches. He wrote a, one cantata every single week to be ready for Sunday. He was just a machine. That guy. Yeah, big time Lutheran. Actually, you know the difference between hymn 656, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and hymn 657, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? The tunes are different. One is a, a metric tune. It's that sort of Lutheran cha-cha-ching that you know we did with the BBS kids. But 657 is the Bach one. It's iso Everything is the same. Boom 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 that you can look in the hymnal, that's box setting. And actually take a cursory glance through the hymnal and you'll realize that many of the settings that you really like are Johann Sebastian Box settings that we still use now because they're so good. So there you go. Any other questions? Okay, we're gonna look at the text. So there was so much to say, the text of the hymn is actually on the back side of your handout. But you can follow along in your hymnal too, okay? This, this hymn, uh, like every hymn, draws from a number of scripture passages. And um, this one in particular draws from the Psalms It's not a paraphrase of the psalms like some hymns are. And I think we looked at one, maybe one of these months, that was a a psalm paraphrase where you can line up the text of the psalm and then look at the text of the hymn and say, oh, wow, look at that. They're saying kind of the same thing, but this one's metric and it rhymes and is kind of nice. Um, But this does draw very heavily on Psalm 18 and Psalm 78, uh, both of which are about... Uh, relying upon God, trusting in him in hard times, about death and and dying. So here is uh, stanza one. Lord, thee I love with all my heart. I pray thee, ne'er from me depart. With tender mercy cheer me. Earth has no pleasure I would share. Yea, heaven itself were void and bare. If thou, Lord, weren't not near me, And should my heart for sorrow break, my trust in thee can nothing shake. Thou art the portion I have sought. Thy precious blood my soul has bought. Lord Jesus Christ, my God and Lord, my God and Lord, forsake me not. I trust thy word. Yes. I
1: notice that that the translation is by Catherine Winkworth. Yes. I think that's kind of interesting because in the, well, that hymnal and, and this one too. Tremendous number of Lutheran, old, German old hymns that she is the translator. Mm-hmm. And that she must have had a really special skill that we don't maybe recognize and that is the ability to put that in rhyme and still keep the thought as it was, because it was written in another language. Mm-hmm. Now we sing it in English and sing it in rhyme, and somehow or another, somebody had to put that together or yes. to translate. It. And I think she's she, she's done a lot of them, and their, their translations I think are very
0: good. Yes, they are. Catherine Wingfurst is, uh, I think, probably one of the most prominent translators in our uh, hymnal. If you look through it and you see all the stuff that she's done, like, see, do you? Uh, this is just polling the room out of curiosity. Do you take the time when you look at a hymn? to look at the bottom and see who wrote it and where it's from and who wrote the tune and all of that? Yeah. If you don't, I'd encourage you to do it because it's, it's kind of interesting. And once you start looking at all of that stuff, you realize, first of all, what a rich tradition we have because a lot of these hymns go back, of course, the, the Lutheran hymns go back to the time of the Reformation, a lot of these, like this one here in the 1560s and 70s already and we're still singing it now. But some of them even go back Further than that, I I want to say that one that we're singing today uh even goes back.
1: She also translated Now Thank We All our God. Yes. The rest of the case. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, Bill's favorite closing hymn. Uh yeah, she did a lot. She's contributed quite a bit to Uh, the Lutheran tradition, translating hymns. We owe her a very great debt. This is, so, by the way, as an aside, this is why you should take umbrage with anybody that says, well, your hymnal's just full of stuff written by dead white guys. Uh, Because it's not. Some of them are alive. Some of them, many of them, are not white. And many of them are not men. Many of the hymns proper are written by women, and the vast majority of the Lutheran hymns that we sing, according to the translations that we've learned and sung our whole lives and enjoy, were translated by women. So, listen, we were uh, full of diversity before it became a cool thing. <laughs> yeah, we're, uh, see, it's an equal opportunities hymnal. All right? Uh, so, you're gonna notice when you look through this text, It's much of it, most of it actually, is in the first person. It's the Christian's prayer, the prayer of faith to God. And that's fine, we always talk about the direction of worship, it comes from God to us, and then from us back to God. So it's fine to have texts that are addressing God from the first person. Lord, I love thee with all my heart. And this is the reality of faith. Uh, you do love God with all your heart. If you are a person of faith, you do love God with all your heart. Even though sometimes you rebel and put yourself first and stumble and fall, repentance and faith always brings you back. I've done this thing. I'm so sorry. Please don't depart from me. Don't forsake me. I trust thy word. Uh, The Lord alone is the one who can bring comfort. And for that reason, faith always calls upon him Faith always looks to the one in whom it trusts for its greatest good, okay yea Lord, twas thy rich bounty gave my body, soul, and all I have in this poor life of labor. Sounds an awful lot like the explanation of the third art, or of the first article. all of these things that God has done for me, He has made me and all creatures, eyes, ears, all my members, He has given me, still takes care of them that he Daily and richly gives me all I need to support this body and life. Lord, grant that I in every place may glorify thy lavish grace and help and serve my neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. That's the commandments. So you pray always that God would guide you, that you would love him more, trust in him more, uh, be a better child, and that you would also love your neighbor more. And serve your neighbor more, and through him, through God, uh, be strengthened to perform more acts of love and service for your neighbor. That's always the prayer. Let no false doctrine me beguile, let Satan not my soul defy. Lord, keep us steadfast in thy word. The truth of the apostolic church. One holy Christian or Catholic and apostolic church. One church. Apostolic teaching from Jesus to the apostles through them all the way down to where we are now. Confessing the same faith. Walking the same way as everyone who has come before us. A great thing to think about for All Saints Day. That we walk in the footsteps of those who have gone before us. We confess the same thing. We Do the same things. We believe the same things. We sing the same hymns. We pray the same psalms. We pray the same prayers. The church is one big thing. Give strength and patience unto me to bear my cross and follow thee. Go where Jesus goes. Lord Jesus Christ, my God and Lord, my God and Lord, in death thy comfort still afford. Even at the hour of death, You need not fear. Pastor's job is to prepare you to die. I prepare you from the point that I baptize you, all the while while I catechize you, every day that I absolve you and give you the body and the blood, all of this, I'm doing it really because it's good for you, but because it prepares you to die. So that at the hour of death, you can say, in death thy comfort still afford. I have nothing to fear. Death is but a slumber, and I slumber in you. And this is, the, this is the best of all the stanzas right here. Lord, let at last thine angels come. To Abram's bosom bear me home, that I may die unfearing. And in its narrow chamber keep my body safe in peaceful sleep until thy reappearing. And then from death awaken me, that these mine eyes with joy may see, O Son of God, thy glorious face, my Savior and my fount of grace, Lord Jesus Christ. My prayer attend, my prayer attend, and I will praise thee without end. There's a couple things here. We've talked a lot about death and the resurrection So I don't need to get into all that, but I do want to talk about this, Abram's bosom. Uh, Because Luke 16, Lazarus and Dives, the rich man, we hear that Lazarus is taken where? To Abram's bosom. Abraham's bosom. Okay, so what does this all mean? Well, I've provided a neat little painting for you, an illumination from the 12th century, right there on the front. And this is of the bosom of Abraham. So the bosom of Abraham is this theological concept for the Old Testament saints, for the, quote-unquote, children of Abraham, the children of the promise, that you are taken to be with your father until the time that Christ comes to rescue you from the death, from uh, the grave. And... You know what happens in at the time of the crucifixion? What what are what is one of the signs that takes place at Jesus' victory? What? Did, okay, the temple curtain is torn. Yes. What else? Graves. The graves are opened and the dead rise and they walk around. Now, what happens to those folks? Do they just die again? No, see, there's this whole understanding. Read the Psalms, and you'll see this. When the, Psalms, when the psalmist prays, he doesn't ever pray, Lord, don't send me to Sheol. He says, don't leave me in Sheol. And when you look at early Christian iconography and manuscripts of Easter and the resurrection, it's beautiful because Christ is coming up often out of the mouth of this monster, and he's, it's like a big snake with fangs, and he's holding the mouth open, and sometimes he's broken the jaws, and out of the belly, out of the mouth, come all of these Old Testament saints, all of those who fell asleep, trusting in the promise and the Messiah to come, and he's pulling them up out of the grave, that in his resurrection they rise so that in our death, we know we only slumber until his coming again. They rested before and we rest, but we rest with Christ, already confident in the victory he has won. So that, with, uh, with Martin Schalling, we can say, from death awaken me that these mine eyes with joy may see. Ah, the slumber of death is but fleeting, but when you come again... I will open my eyes. These very eyes that are in my head right now, I will stand with this very body, this very flesh, and I will see you. And I was, we talked about this in midweek. I said it was kind of like Spider-Man. Uh, John Oswald and I, we are we're the only ones in my class that have spectacles. And I said, John, you and I, we're gonna get the VIP ticket in the resurrection because we're not gonna need these anymore. We're gonna be like Peter Parker being bitten by a radioactive spider and waking up the next morning and looking in the mirror and saying, boy, I actually see better without my glasses than I do with them. What's happened? You've been perfected in the resurrection in Christ. Bill. The,
1: the verse here, or the line, um, and, in, in, and in its narrow chamber key, my body safe in peaceful sleep. I go over to Martin Luther's uh, From Heaven Above. Uh-huh. Uh, and verse 13, Our dearest Jesus, holy child, make thee a bed soft undefiled within my heart that it would be a quiet chamber kept for thee.
0: Yep. Very, this, very yeah, yeah. So um, now, with our last few minutes, I'm gonna just sort of sing the tune for you like before, like we normally do, and then we can, sing stanza one together. Um, And of course, back to music theory, we'll want to stay on the front end of the tempo. This one's really easy to slow down, and it's no fun to sing this when it's slow. Let's get our pitch here. Whoa. Okay, well we're having some trouble with the pitch card.
2: Bum ba da dum da 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 Okay, let's sing it all together St- 708 stanza one ready Lord, Lord thee I, I love, love with all my in thee can nothing shake. Thou art the portion I have sought. Thy precious blood, my soul, trust thy word.
0: Good, and you choir folks are all warmed up now, too. (laughs) Man with a plan. Any questions? Okay. Uh, Then I will see you at the high altar. If you're in choir, please come to find me at the entrance to the nave, because I have sheets for you to put in your binder. Okay, see you in church.